From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Oren Canfield, and I will be reading from my new memoir, Long Past Stopping. Chapter 1, in which our protagonist sets foot in this world, survives a nuclear meltdown, and learns the secrets of juggling from a traveling group of hippies. As far as I knew, life started when I was four. I don't have any memories from before that. It was as if I had walked into the theater halfway through the movie and had to pay extra special attention to figure out what was going on. There were three of us in a big house somewhere near Philadelphia, and there was a pool and a kitchen drawer full of sugar. The woman with long dark braids wearing Guatemalan clothes was my mom, and the kid crawling around on all fours in Guatemalan skirts was my brother Kyle. There was another character who hadn't yet made an appearance, but his name came up almost daily. His name was Jack, and from everything I'd heard, he was the lying, cheating, conniving, manipulative, inhuman son of a bitch who left my mom when I was one, and she was six months pregnant with Kyle. I didn't know what kind of clothes Jack wore, but in my imagination, he had red skin and horns. I watched and listened, and Mom filled me in on the parts I had missed. I was born at home in a small town in western Massachusetts where my parents had recently opened up a holistic health center. Present at my birth were my mother, my father, a midwife, and ten Buddhist monks from the monastery up the road. The monks were there to chant throughout my delivery. Oh, it was so beautiful, Oren, really just an amazing experience, Mom told me when I was old enough to understand such things. You were big, though. It took you 72 hours to come out, and I had to go straight to the hospital afterwards. When I got back, we ate the placenta. You what? I asked. Of course, honey. That's where all the nutrients are stored for the breast milk. Humans are the only mammals that don't eat the placenta after they give birth. I took her word for it. We've become so detached from nature, we're losing our natural instincts. I mean, can you believe that people have their babies in hospitals under all those fluorescent lights, and the first thing they do is spank you to make you cry? Then they take you away from your mother and they cut off your foreskin. It's barbaric. No way was I going to put you through that. Seriously, the first thing they do is hit you, then cut off a part of your penis. The way she put it, it did sound like a pretty crappy reception. Did you cook it, I asked about the placenta? Oh yeah, we fried it up with some butter. It's kind of like steak. Then what? Well, you know, we were extremely busy running this business and taking care of a staff of 25 people, so all day you were passed around among the 50 or so people at the center. Everyone loved you. In between leading primal or scream therapy sessions, Mom would breastfeed me or Jack would walk around with me strapped to his chest reading poems he had written. But for the most part, a community of weird therapists, early self-help freaks, and drug-experimenting hippies took care of me. It was really an incredible time, she said with a distant look in her eyes. A year after I was born, when Mom was pregnant with Kyle, Jack hooked up with a masseuse employed at the center. He decided that my mom's birthday was as good a day as any to tell her he was in love with someone else and she should probably pack up and leave. I didn't know what to do, Mom told me. After the divorce, we got into a camper and just started driving. I didn't know where to go, so we just drove around the country. My brother Kyle was born in a hotel in Mexico, delivered by the town doctor. Mom decided that it might be nice to cook up the placenta with some onions and bell peppers this time. She invited Jack to come down to see his son, but she never got a response. She went back to the States just long enough to take care of Kyle's paperwork and was told by a pediatrician that he was most likely both retarded and a midget, but that it would be a few years before either was noticeable. Devastated, aimless, and alone with two kids, she decided to continue south to Guatemala because of a rumor that Nestle Corporation was trying to get the Indians to quit breastfeeding and use their scientifically engineered baby formula instead. We moved to an area called Panahachel on a huge lake surrounded by seven villages, each with its own language. 
With only gutter water to mix the formula with, these Guatemalan babies were dying from all manner of disease. Mom rented a house near a big lake and began her one-woman crusade against Nestle. In the beginning, she walked around from village to village wearing a Guatemalan dress and combat boots with Kyle strapped to her chest and me riding on her back. After a catastrophic earthquake that killed 12,000 people, we were left at home while she went around educating the natives on the benefits of breastfeeding and the evils of American corporations. The earthquake was unbelievable, she said. You were fine, but Kyle almost died. He was only a few months old, and his lungs couldn't handle all the dust in the air. When we got to the hospital, they tried to turn us away because they were so full, but when they saw Kyle, they agreed to take him in. We slept in the hall for three days. When we got back home, the house had been taken over by a bunch of Indian families who had lost their huts in the earthquake. It worked out, though, because they were more than happy to take care of you guys while I went out to work. I loved listening to these adventure stories, and I wished I could remember being there because they sounded like fun. After two years of living in Mexico and Central America, Mom was ready to come back to the States and start her own therapy practice in Philadelphia. For the first few months, we lived in a house that belonged to some friends of hers while she looked for a place to start her new therapy center. While we were there, I managed to eat an entire drawer full of sugar. Mom thought I liked to climb on top of bookshelves and run around in circles because I was a curious and active kid. The truth was that I was high on refined sugar that I ate by the handful. I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't help myself. When the high wore off, I'd find a closet or a cupboard to hide in. We moved from there to an old three-story mansion she bought in the suburbs. In a matter of months, her new center was teeming with clients. She liked the house because it was made of stone, and it was a stone house that had saved our lives in Guatemala when the earthquake hit. The new house had tons of new closets and cupboards to explore. Mom would find me and ask, Ori, what are you doing under the sink? Or, hey, Oren, what's going on down there? I'd poke my head out from under a bed, and she would just kind of laugh at me. If I really didn't want to be found, I would go into a closet and cover my whole body with a pile of clothes, but this would usually instigate some sort of panic, and I would have to get out of the closet without being seen and find another hiding place where Mom could find me so I wouldn't have to answer any questions about where I'd been. She was confused when she found me in a spot she had already checked. Seriously, Orrin, is there something going on in there I should know about, Mom would ask? I didn't have an answer for her. I liked my spot on the stairs where I could watch Mom's clients come and go. It was right between the first floor and the landing. It faced the front door and it gave me a view of the dining room on the right and the entrance to the conference room on the left. I found that I could just hide out inside of my head instead of the closet or the cupboard. For the most part, none of Mom's clients ever seemed to notice me there. It was almost as good as hiding in the cupboard. That's where I was sitting when Jack walked in. When Mom told me he was coming, I expected to see a monster with fangs and horns, but Jack looked just like everyone else who came to the house. Khaki pants, tucked in blue shirt, short hair. We weren't big huggers around that house, but Jack came up with his arms open, and not knowing what to do, I mimicked him and found myself on the receiving end of his uncomfortably long embrace. Oren, I'm Jack, your father. Hi, was all I could think to say. You're getting so big, I hardly recognized you. What are you, five years old now? Four, I answered. Where's Oren? I'm Oren. I mean Kyle, your brother. Outside, I answered. I was content to stay on the stairs while Jack went out to find Kyle, but Mom's face made it clear that I was to follow them outside. Hey, Oren, I hardly recognized you. You're so big, he said to Kyle. Kyle glanced at him for a second before going back to playing with a pile of pine cones he collected. That's Kyle, Mom said. I mean Kyle. Hey, Kyle, how old are you now, he asked, walking over to him. Kyle wasn't doing much talking yet and seemed not to hear him. He's three, I answered for him. How can he be three if you're four, he asked, visibly confused. 
Truth be told, I was confused about that too. Some of the time I was two years older. They're 18 months apart. Remember, Jack, how I wanted them to be close in age so they could be friends, Mom said? Jack nodded, but it didn't look as if he remembered much of anything about us. I was surprised that Mom was being so nice to him, considering all the time she spent ranting and raving about what an evil monster he was. Can you imagine leaving your wife when she's six months pregnant and taking care of a one-year-old, she often asked me? I always shook my head. I really thought he was different. What a fool I was. They're all the same. He used to read me these love poems. He wrote beautiful poems, by the way. Then on my birthday, he took me to the lake house, and that's when he told me he was sleeping with that blonde masseuse, and I cried and told him we could work it out, and he said it was over, that he was in love with her. Can you believe it? Again, I shook my head. That's all I knew about this guy, and I was relieved when he left and I got to go back to my stairs. A month later, there was a meltdown at a nuclear power plant 100 miles away, and not knowing the extent of the damage, Mom wanted to get Kyle and me out of the area. Mom alternated between screaming and crying on her office phone. These are your sons, Jack. Well, of course the government is going to say that, but no one really knows how bad it is. That's why you need to come down and get your kids out of here now. She was still sniffling when she came out to help me pack up my stuff. So, Ori, Jack has agreed to take you, and Grandma Ada is coming to get Kyle. Why can't I go with Grandma, I asked. Because you and Kyle need to start having a relationship with your father. I just thought maybe I was wrong about him, and he would come and get you guys. But he's too busy to take care of his own kids, she said, choking up. I had to plead with him just to get him to take you. Can you believe it? I shook my head. One of Jack's friends picked me up from the train station, and a few days later, Jack came and took me to the therapeutic center in Massachusetts that he and my mom had started. He was the main guy there, but beyond that, I didn't have any idea what exactly he did. A bunch of adults would go into a room with him and emerge a few hours later. That part was no different from what my mom did in Philadelphia, and I felt lucky that with two parents who fixed other people, I would never have any problems of my own. I got to see the room I was born in and the lake house where he told my mom it was over, and just as mom had described it, Jack was so busy that I was passed around to the staff who watched me for a few days until the experts declared that it was safe to return to Pennsylvania. When I got back, mom was concerned that sitting on the stairs all day wasn't good for me, so she hired a piano teacher, sent me to school, and tried to expose me to the arts, science, and nature. I couldn't understand what the problem was. Everything seemed fine to me, but she thought it was bad that I didn't talk to anyone and claimed that she had never seen me smile. She was right for the most part, but what was so bad about not smiling? Plus, it wasn't totally true. Mom was a busy woman, running her new center, appearing on television, doing panel discussions, playing music. She was so busy, she had to hire someone to take care of us. I smiled when Laurel, our Jamaican housekeeper, would sneak Kyle and me into her room to let us watch TV and give us ice cream. Laurel would have been fired in a second if Mom found out she had given us something containing processed sugar, not to mention let us watch TV, so we kept it a secret. Laurel worked her ass off for us, but she did get a couple of nights a week to go spend with her family. This was kind of traumatic for Kyle and me because it meant no TV and ice cream after Mom left for the night to go play piano at one of her jam sessions. Bob, the psychoanalyst who rented a room upstairs, was always around, but we didn't like him too much. We would make the best of it by going through the stacks of records Mom would bring back from her trips to New York. She called it rap music, and Kyle and I could listen to these records for hours. We would memorize the lyrics and make up dance routines. Like almost everything else that seemed normal to us, such as carob, tofu, macrobiotics, rolfing, homeopathy, and gestalt therapy, I didn't know anyone who had ever heard of rap music. Laurel hated it, though, and would go into one of her fits if she heard us listening to it. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Turn off that racket, boys. I don't know what has become of black folks in this country. They call that music? 
And what you white boys listening to this for? Your mother is a crazy woman going to New York and carrying on the way she do. Lord have mercy on your souls is more like it. I'm going to pray for your boys. It's too late for your mother. Prayer won't help that woman. I don't know what will. We listen to Laurel in the same way we listen to our rap albums. It didn't matter what she was saying. We were mesmerized by the rhythm of her voice, her accent, and her way with words. Sometimes, if we were lucky, Mom would bring us along to her jam sessions in the heart of West Philly. She may not have been able to see me smile from her place behind the piano, but I couldn't help grin from ear to ear seeing her on the stage. At the bar, they called her the doctor, and we walked in. Everyone knew it. I don't think any white folks had ever set foot in that place. At least I had never seen one. But you couldn't imagine a warmer reception. Everyone seemed to know and like Mom. All the other musicians rotated from song to song, but Mom stayed up there for three hours at a time. She always asked someone, usually whoever was closest to the door, to keep an eye on us, but once the novelty of trying to talk to the two socially retarded white kids wore off, we would never see that person again. It didn't matter much. We just stood on top of the table watching Mom until we got tired and climbed back down to the booth. At 2 a.m. or so, she would wake us up and say goodbye to everyone, and we would get in the Peugeot and drive home. In an effort to expose Kyle and me to some of the stranger opportunities for American kids, Mom sent us off to a circus arts camp in New York the summer I turned seven years old. The camp was run by 60s icon Wavy Gravy and his partner Surya, a Sufi clown. The circus camp offered classes in tightrope walking, juggling, acrobatics, and magic. Since Wavy didn't really have any skills, circus or otherwise, he played a one-string instrument he called a unitar and taught a class called Space Eaters, which could be loosely described as an acting class for the other kids like himself, who didn't possess or have any interest in acquiring the skills for the more technical circus arts. I'm not sure what it was that drew me to juggling. I was equally bad at everything I tried to do, but aside from tightrope walking, which was limited in how far you could take it, juggling had less of a performance aspect than most of the other classes. True, you did have to do it in front of people, but the clowns had to act goofy, and the magicians had to talk to the audience, and juggling seemed like less work than acrobatics and trapeze. It was kind of like staring into space all day. Most kids either learned to juggle in a couple of days or just gave up. Three days into it, I could barely throw one ball back and forth, but I had figured out that if I spent the whole day at least trying, no one would talk to me. Occasionally, one of the teachers, Lancer Surya, would offer a few words of advice, but for the most part, it was the first thing I had found that made not talking to anyone socially acceptable. So I kept at it, despite not being very good. By the time my mom came back for the big performance, I had been at it for a week and could keep three balls in the air for a minute or so. I had never performed in front of an audience before, and just the thought of standing in front of a crowd of people made me want to vomit. How the hell could I focus on keeping those balls in the air when I couldn't even keep my knees from shaking? Unable to think of a way out, I walked onto the stage, and for almost one minute, I forgot about the audience because it was all I could do to focus on the juggling. And despite myself, I actually smiled. I didn't know at the time that a smile could so drastically change the course of my life. If I had known, I wouldn't have done it. But to judge from my mom's reaction, it was as if Christ himself had come down from the heavens. Actually, Christ coming down would have just pissed her off. It was as if the whole world had just been enlightened by the smile of her seven-year-old son. As a result of this smile, I rather suddenly found myself with an identity, a social network, if you could call it that, and a reason for my existence. On a return to Philly, Mom lost no time in researching the juggling scene, finding out where they met, and who was the best teacher in the city. At that point, I didn't need any outside motivation. As soon as I realized that I could isolate myself in the backyard with my juggling balls and my new unicycle without anyone bothering me, I was there, and I stayed there for the next year. Nonetheless, Mom found the best juggler in Philadelphia, 
and I would go over to his place a couple of times a week for lessons. Fu was a very short Vietnamese immigrant, not much taller than myself, who could juggle seven balls. At the time, there were only four or five people in the world who were capable of that, and all of them seemed to be pretty successful. But Fu didn't use his power for fame or money. Like me, he just juggled in his backyard. My lessons, however, seemed to have very little to do with juggling. They pretty much consisted of listening to long monologues in his broken English about flow, balance, becoming one with the objects I was juggling, and tuning into the natural order of things. What I actually learned was to tune out and nod my head as if I were listening, which I came to find was also a very useful skill. Much to my mom's relief, I began talking to people at the juggling meets in Franklin Square and even made a friend my own age at school. Life was moving along, and aside from the minor things like not being allowed to watch TV or eat anything with sugar, dairy, wheat, chocolate, or meat in it, or having to wait 20 minutes after we ate to drink a glass of water, or not getting our immunizations, or not seeing any Western doctors, even when a car hit me at 50 miles per hour right across the street from the children's hospital, or not being allowed to play competitive sports, or finally being the bastard children of the great white devil himself, who was not a red man with horns like I had thought, but actually a white guy somewhere up in Massachusetts who was posing as a motivational speaker. Aside from these small things, there was, in retrospect, a sense of normalcy that we would never experience again. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.